chapter 14, we're going to look at the first seven uh, verses. You know, there are two people mentioned in the Bible, as far as we know, uh, did not die. Uh, we know Enoch, it said, and he was not. But also, we know that Elijah was transported to heaven, was taken from this earth to heaven, apparently without ever having died. And it was an amazing event. Um, he didn't face death, but supernaturally was transported into heaven. Uh, I shared last week one of my favorite Old Testament characters is Elisha with the S-H, not Elijah with the J. You may remember the account in 2 Kings chapter 2. Elisha was desiring a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had. And Elijah basically said, if you watch me as I go up, then uh, you'll be blessed with that. And as we read in 2 Kings chapter 2, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared, separating the two men, Elisha staying on the earth, and Elijah being immediately swept up into a whirlwind, not to be seen again. Similar to the man rising from the dead that we looked at last week who was uh, cast into a grave and touched the remains of Elisha and rose up, I was thinking, boy, I would have loved to have been there. I would love to have been there when Elijah was transported into heaven in a chariot of fire. I've never seen anyone leave the earth this way, and I doubt you have either. But you know, as great as that transport was for Elijah, that did not equate necessarily with his spirituality. And by that I mean just because he left in such a magnificent way did not mean he was more spiritual than others. In fact, there have been many saints throughout history, godly men and women, having served God all their lives, who departed this life quietly in a room with a few family members or in pain or through struggle. Well, today we're looking at the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did not leave uh, this earth with great fanfare. He did not leave this earth uh, following a horse-drawn chariot of fire. In fact, he died a humiliating death between two thieves. And his death was not a sudden transport as we see in the case with Elijah. Rather, he took a number of days not only to prepare himself, but to prepare his very close following disciples, what was going to happen. And I want to look at that today. We're going to look at John chapter 14. And here, Jesus is sharing words of knowledge. He knew that he was going to be with the Father. He knew what the disciples were preparing to experience. And so he shared words of instruction and comfort with them. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go again and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. And then enters Thomas, doubting Thomas. 
He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, we want to lift up the name of Jesus. Father, we've already done so in song this morning. Lord, there is none like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there may be still some here today who have yet to believe on the living Lord, the triumphant Lord, the one worthy of all praise. Lord, it's our desire that you be lifted up in the teaching of your word today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we've done with each of these uh, sayings, the seven I am sayings that are found in the Gospel of John, uh, we want to follow sort of that same pattern and first establishing the context for this. This, uh, the, the, the context, uh, the, the, the timeline for when Jesus spoke these words to the disciples, were, it was just prior to the Passover feast of that year. Jesus was with his disciples, and as we look chronologically, uh, last, the last chapter, John 13, he had washed the disciples' feet, representing the fact that he would humble himself and serve them, uh, that they might be in right standing uh, with uh, the Father. Jesus' crucifixion here is near. It's very interesting as we look at the Gospels. Uh, it's a matter of just, a, really, you would say a few weeks if you want to include uh, uh, the resurrection appearances, that, that uh, approximately about one quarter of each of the four Gospels is made up primarily of just a number of days out of Jesus' three years of public ministry. So in John 13, we see uh, these last uh, days that he's spending with his disciples, and so is the case uh, here in John chapter 14. Jesus knew he was going to die. It's very interesting as we were studying in Sunday school today about the spirit of Abraham who was thinking about Lot rather than thinking about himself when he was distributing the land. Here was Jesus having the pressure of his imminent death, but he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking about his disciples. He realized that their world was going to be radically changed. He realized that they would be losing the one upon whom they had been focusing for a number of years, three years, we might say. They realized that they would uh, be separated from the one for whom they forsook all. Jesus would soon die and they would be left alone. But as we read here, we might add, or would they? Because Jesus here at the beginning of John uh, 14 says that his death was not the end that he would go to prepare a heavenly abode for them and that he would return for them. Now this morning we're looking at the sixth of Jesus' seven I am sayings and two weeks from today we'll conclude our study. Again, next week the Johnsons will be sharing across the way and invite your friends out uh, to that. Two weeks from today we'll look at the seventh saying, but today we're looking at his sixth saying. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, as we look at it in, in the original language, it carries the idea that just I am is I and I alone am. And then he follows that each week 
uh, as we've looked at these sayings, not with an indefinite article like a uh, or an, but a definite article, the. In other words, he's saying, I am the true way, the truth, the life. The definite article establishes his uniqueness here. And so in each of these seven sayings, what we've looked at is this truth. There's no one like Jesus. Do you believe that? I do. There's no one like him. He's worthy of worship. We can't even begin to express how great he is. And the desire in your life and my life is that he be magnified. In other words, not that he see us, not that they see us, but that they see him. And so as we look at this today, I want to look at the three definite things that Jesus says about himself. And first here in verse 6, after saying, you know the way to where I'm going, and Thomas, who was not sure, said, Lord, how do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. Not I am a way, but I am the way. The word way translates the Greek hados, and it carries the idea of a path or a passageway or a road. A road or a way is basically a path whereby one gets from one point to another point. Now, you know, the, the big joke uh, around my family and even this church is I have this thing here. It's not a smartphone, okay? It's been beat up. It's a number of years. I'll probably keep it until the hinge breaks or it gives way. But I, I feel like the person on the commercial, you've seen it where the older people show up and the guy says, if you use MapQuest to get here, you're in the right place. Well, I actually still use MapQuest, believe it or not, because I don't have a smartphone that tells me what I need to do and when I need to do it. But whenever I go to MapQuest, you know where I'm going with this. You may remember, it's probably been a number of years for you, but it has starting point and finishing point. Point of origin, point of destination, point A and point B. And once you push in the coordinates, then, wow, it begins to give you the directions of how to get to point B. Spiritually speaking, we've seen last week and again this week that every person begins at point A where we are as a sinful created being. That's point A. Now, point B is where do we want to be and that is to be in right relationship with the father to have life restored and to have heaven that's our destination uh, and, and the question is how do we get from point a to point b and we saw last week what puts us at point a adam sinned first as a result of that sin entered humanity and has touched every one of us and then third, fellowship with God is severed, just like that cut cedar tree, the life where we're severed from the root of our life, and the, the resultant state is death. And so Adam sinned, thus all sinned. The result of that sin, we're separated from God, and the result of that is death. And there are really two Old Testament pictures that depict the severed relationship, that depict where we are at point A. The first we looked at last week, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cast them from the garden, and what he did is he posted a guardian cherub, or cherubim, multiple, and they had flaming swords 
that swirled. In other words, it went around. It meant total coverage. And what uh, those cherubim were to do, they were pr to protect the way back for man to the tree of life so that man could not reach up and take from that tree. And what that literal event uh, depicts to us spiritually is this. When man sinned, God determined that man by his own works could not reach point B from point A. In other words, he sinned, and the answer is not man being able to reach up on his own and merit eternal life. The second Old Testament picture we did not look at last week, but I want to look at briefly that represents the severing that our sin brings from a holy God is the veil in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And the veil was placed within the temple or tabernacle, depending which season, and it separated the most holy place of the temple that represented the presence of God. And so under the old covenant, it represented the veil, a separation from our holy God, from everything and everyone else. Man who is sinful is separated from a holy God. The cherubim guarding the tree back to the way of life, the veil separating sinful man from holy God. The question is, how does man restore this broken relationship? How does man get back into right standing with God? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. There are ways that may seem reasonable. Okay, I'm going to get back to God. I'm going to pull myself up, and I'm going to do it. I, I like what Matt Carter and Josh Redberg uh, noted in their uh, comments on this fact, and I concur. Uh, they said this, good works, giving to charity, penance, last rites, karma, reincarnation, martyrdom for a cause. They say all of those fail in the way to get back to God. Not one of these bridges the gap, nor does any of them break the barrier between man and God. Only Jesus Christ does that. He alone is the way. Now remember, I just mentioned that second Old Testament picture of the veil <clears throat> that separated our holy God and what represented his presence from everything else. The scripture tells us in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent or torn from top to bottom. And not only was it torn, but notice, and it wasn't just coincidence that God's word says this, but it was torn from top to bottom, which pictures that God is the answer to man's problem. And that's why Jesus came. In other words, man could not reach up when the, when the cherubim were guarding the tree, but God would reach down by tearing the veil from top to bottom. Jesus is the way to eternal life. He's the way to be restored to the Father. Do you realize this morning that your sin has separated you from a holy God and Jesus and Jesus alone is the way back to the Father? But he says not only I am the way, but he says I am the truth. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 17. John 1, 17, uh, John writes, 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now Moses was good. You would not hear any New Testament writer speak down Moses. The law was good. In fact, Paul says the law is spiritual. The issue is not with the law. The issue is with us. But there's one thing that the law does lack. The law does not give light, life. The law does not restore us to God. The law shows us our need to be restored. But there's not one law that is given that can impart life to any one of us. And so he says that, that uh, you know, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? Jesus is greater. Jesus is the giver of the law. He is the full revelation of God's truth. He is the fulfiller of the law. John the Baptist, as true as he was, and there's hardly a man ever walked the face of the earth that was as true as John the Baptist. What did he do? He deferred to Jesus. And rightly so. All that is true points to Jesus. And I know Brian enjoys studying Hebrews, and he, at his last church, had preached through that. And I, I know his appreciation for that book. And, and I love that book, too. And back about uh, during COVID, I, I began to just look through it at what it had to say about Jesus. And boy, it gets you excited. It basically says Jesus is the best. He's superior. Hebrews 1.5, he's superior to the angels. Hebrews 1.10-11, he's superior to all the rest of created order. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, he's superior to the prophets. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 14, he is superior over death. Chapter 2 and verse 14 also, he's superior over the devil. Chapter 5 and verse 6, he's superior to the high priest. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 12, he's superior to the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he's superior to Moses. All of these, inferior, they all point to Jesus. And, and then in chapter 8, of verse 5, he speaks of all of the persons and objects of the Old Covenant. And he speaks of them as a shadow of things, like a hologram, when Jesus is the reality. He's the truth. I wonder today, do you know the truth, Jesus Christ? But then thirdly, he says, I am the light. And as we shared last week, these last three sayings, number five of last week, this is the sixth this week, in two weeks we'll look at the seventh. There's one thing they all share in common, light, that Jesus is light. He is the life. Last week, uh, he spoke to Martha, and he said what? I am the resurrection and the life. We differentiated between resuscitation, which is reviving for time, only to have one die again, and the greater resurrection that those in Christ anticipate he's the resurrection and the life this week we're looking at the fact that not only is he the way and the truth but he is the life next uh, two weeks from today we're going to look at the fact that he is the vine for the branches and the vine is the one that gives life that's found in John chapter 15 but I want to look a little further before we close this morning to this aspect of of Jesus that we began studying last week, that he's the light. 
when Peter preached at Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he preached about two individuals, David, King David of the Old Testament, and Jesus. And of David, Peter said, the patriarch David, he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. He said that as recorded in Acts 2, 29. But then he adds two verses later in verse 31, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah and how the Messiah was what? Not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh experience decay. In other words, Jesus' body did not experience decay. Um, last week we looked at Lazarus, and Lazarus, uh, Jesus came to him on the fourth day. Well, Jesus was resurrected on the third day. The scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 3, I believe it's around verse 15, that, that Satan himself would try to deal a blow to the foot of Jesus, but Jesus would deal the death blow to the head. Jesus didn't die. He arose, and he's living today. That's the key. He's living today. Tonight, we're going to be studying the last study, and basically, if, if I could give a synopsis, and that doesn't mean don't come tonight because there's some good discussion in it, but basically, if we're serving a living Savior, we ought to live that way moment by moment. People ought to see the living Christ in us. My dad loved to read a, a man named Watchman Nee, who, who lived a number of years ago. And so whenever I see books of Watchman Nee, I'll purchase I find them at Mardell's, and I go in. I, and in, in the years 1939 and 19. 40, Watchman Nee, for a period of time on Wednesday nights, led a Bible study in Shanghai, China. And it was during these midweek services in the city that these messages were compiled. It was from them. And as a result of that, someone put it in a book titled, Christ, the Sum of All Things. It's a tiny book, but it's a, a great read. But in the series, in the book, Watchman Nee differentiates between a living Christianity and a dead Christianity. And he said the difference is between focusing on a purpose, or a person rather, or a thing. And he says Christianity that is a living and vibrant Christianity is a Christianity that is centered upon the living person of Christ. He goes on to add, Christ doesn't just give us things. He gives himself. It's not that he gives wisdom as something that's exterior from himself as if it were apart from him, but he gives himself as wisdom. It's not that uh, he gives peace by the same measure, but he is peace. So as he gives us peace, he gives us himself. For instance, as the bread of life, he gives his own living self. Today, when you go home, you may eat bread. If you eat bread that's not living bread, you'll eventually consume it, and it won't be there. But as the living bread, he ever lives to feed us. As our light, he ever lives to guide us. As our shepherd, he ever lives to protect and to lead us. I love that uh, hymn that's, uh, so often sung, 
at Easter. He lives. He, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what people may say. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation he impart. You ask me how, I know he lives. He lives within my heart. I wonder today, are you experiencing the living Savior? He lives. Is he living in and through you? See, he doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't just present to us the truth. He is the truth. He does not just give life. He is the life. Well, we need to understand this great resource who would live in the believer. We don't need an object. We need a person. Dr. James Gray wrote a hymn titled, The Road Leads Home, year 1933. I'm not familiar with it. It's an older hymn. You may be familiar with it. But the first verse goes like this. O pilgrim, as you journey, do you ever gladly say, in spite of heavy weather, the roughness of the way, that it really doesn't matter, all the strange and bitter stress, heat and cold and toil and sorrow will be healed with blessedness. For the road leads home, sweet, sweet home. Oh, who would mind the journey when the road leads home? I don't know what you're going through today, but I pray your road is leading home. I pray that you've trusted Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. I pray the testimony that was sung just two years before this man died a number of years ago would be your testimony. I pray that not only is he the way, the truth, the life, but he is also your way in your truth in your life. Maybe today you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard about him. You know about him, but you've never in your heart trusted him and say, Lord, I trust you as my way. I trust you as the truth, my truth. I trust you, my life to you, that, that you might pay my price, that, that the price that you paid on the cross would be applied to my life. You see, we must personally apply him to our lives, and that comes by believing in him. But for us to believe in him, we have to first confess that we need him. That, God, I can't make it on my own. Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I need your payment. I trust in you today. Would you come today and say, Lord, I confess my sin to you. I need you. I'm heading in the wrong direction. I need you as the way, the truth, and the life in my life. Maybe as a Christian, you've made that decision in the past. But I love how this study tonight talks about moment by moment, that that's important. Moment by moment, we apply the truth. That, that our Christian life is not just some decision we made uh, a time ago. That would be like a dead Christianity, but a living Christianity, moment by moment, living in the fullness of God, Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, dwelling and living through us. Today, maybe you need to reaffirm the Lordship of Christ in your life, that, that you might be a more effective witness for him. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, there's some here today, 
maybe for the first time, they understand that they're a sinner, that, Lord, you came to pay the price for their sin, that they might have a way back into fellowship with you. Father, every one of us needs a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. There may be others here today who have made that decision at a significant point in one's life, but, Lord, who also need to come today Say, Lord, I want to experience you every day, every day as my living, living Savior. That, Lord, we would yield ourselves moment by moment to you. Father, we thank you and we love you and lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is going to be open for any.